This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Sentner. This week on Media Business Matters, we're doing another episode in what has kind of become a series on the film industry. We're going to be talking about the blurring of the lines between film and television with Dan Herbert, a professor here at the University of Michigan. Dan, welcome to Media Business Matters. Thank you very much. It's come up in our conversations in the last few podcasts, I feel. Okay. I feel like we've talked about it at least twice since I've been back. Um, and it came up a lot as I was taking questions when I as I gave the talk in different places yeah. um, in January and February. You know, sort of this, what do we make of something on Netflix like the, the Gilmore Girls uh, reboot, which were four 90-minute... What Games. is it? Is it If it's TV, why is it TV? Yeah. Uh, if we want to call them films, why do we want to call them films? What's at stake? You can right. even look at something like Sherlock, you know, the three 90-minute right. episodes that's right. that come out every year. Like, well, and that's a very British model, too, yeah. where, like, like, the kind of the miniseries in a British context already tended more toward a cinematic kind of story structure length uh, even though th those were playing on, on television already. So the BBC actually isn't even modeling itself on cinema so much as just prior BBC yeah. quality prestige miniseries like uh, Prime Suspect and things like that. Right. And so in the U.S., those started to be called made-for-television movies, movies right. once, you, once you leave the notion of serial uh, or you know, episodic regular installments, and they're always an hour long. Yeah. I mean, what do you think is really... Like, why is this worth even talking about? Well, I mean, I think it's worth talking about for a number of reasons. One, the industry, with a capital I, still divides itself up uh, into motion picture groups within the studios themselves, or within the conglomerates that include the studios. And that although there are, there are ways in which laborers can float back and forth from TV, something called a TV production to a movie production, a lot of places still get hired, you get, executives still get hired within those motion picture groups or those television groups, you, or you get pegged as a certain kind of TV worker or a, or a movie worker, film worker. Um, and from our perspective, right, our students still think of things uh, in terms of movies and television. Academics are still hired in part based on what quote-unquote medium we work on, and that includes television or, or movies or film. So those are some institutional, practical reasons. I Clearly, also, there are cultural connotations associated with the words television, film, movies, cinema, although those connotations might be slippery and even more slippery than ever. Um, there's, there's an issue, there are issues of cultural value and position attached to those terms alone. And so talking about what counts as film, what counts as television, is also a conversation about what has a certain kind of cultural value or, or currency and what doesn't or what has, what, you know, how these things are related. I mean, how much of that connotation comes from where you see the, right, you see the content? Right, right. Well, I mean, I think, and I was <laughs> doing a little bit of prep for this talk when I was thinking about that. Clearly it matters to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences that a, that a film has to play in a theater. Otherwise, Amazon would not have worried so much about Manchester on the Sea. Netflix wouldn't have literally bought time in a theater 
to put Beasts of No Nation in there for like a week or two, which is a huge money loss for them, but they needed the theatrical presence in order to get their prospects for award nominations, right? It matters to some institutions, including the MPAA and the Academy, in terms of prestige. And I think it matters to the the cultures that organize themselves around exhibition venues. I mean, to the extent that there is still a kind of film-going culture that has investment in the theatrical space. They've got also an investment in thinking of film with a capital F, uh, as cinema with a capital C or whatever <laughs> else. Uh, and so that and that is a lot about prestige, or it can be a lot about prestige and status. Uh, I guess considering yourself like, oh, I'm a film buff, I go to films in that's the right. theater, like that's that, right. that sort of that's thing. That's right, and there are still those people. Oh, yeah. uh, well, in this long, I mean, I tend to ignore things that I think are silly, and right. so this yeah. is the part of this that I tend to ignore, although it, I guess it does need to be acknowledged, right? This idea of film and television carrying different cultural capital because of, you know, somewhat because of their accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue that that accomplishment had everything to do with industrial constraints and sure. factors, um, yeah. as opposed to being any kind of inherent feature of the medium. The way in which film has historically been regarded and in a conversation about art, whereas television was popular, low, mass culture, right. um, very much connected with commercialism, mm-hmm. especially in the U.S. I think that's one place where, indeed, there are stakes to this conversation to people who don't think that those are silly distinctions, right. but who actually do believe in them. Yeah. Um, no, completely. And I think that the, the move toward what you've called phenomenal television or the idea like the quality television in, and, and the popularization of that or the normalization of that over the course of the 2000s into the millennium, post, like into the teens, has confused a lot of things um, and certainly caused crises around cinephilia and the industries that organize themselves around cinephiles um, and, and quality cinema. Uh, we still have like... TV show, showrunners trying to say like, oh, I'm making, I'm not making a TV show, I'm making like, a ten-hour movie. movie. That's yeah, right. Like Amazon the, execs. The, right. the Game yeah. of Thrones showrunners were just saying that. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And what does that even mean? Well, actually, <laughs> right. let's 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 pull it apart in a minute. But yeah. first. So, as I've been trying to make sense of television's distribution shift yeah, into uh, you know, Netflix and whether or not that television or why or wouldn't it would or wouldn't be, now, I've relied a lot on this definition by Lynn Spiegel of television as a medium as being based on technology, industrial practices, government formations, and practices of looking. Yeah. And so if we think about those things, so technology um, has gotten very blurry between film and television, both uh-huh. in terms of distribution and screen. Uh-huh. Um, the place that I think there's been the most holdout is industrial practice. Yeah. Um, but I think that's also something that's hardest for a lay audience to see. So you have two things going on. On one hand, in the realm of television, we are starting to have some very different industrial practices develop as the portals fund television production differently than the deficit financing system that has been used for most all of U.S. television history. And so, you know, in the way in which, you know, there was a difference, I think, between being hired on a film and the process of of working and making a film um, than there was to television, largely because uh, television was ongoing. Mm-hmm. Television, it was it was 
my sense is that it was a, a longer year of work, let's yep. say, if you were making 22 episodes. Yep. And, you know, where do you think there are both similarities and differences from the industrial practices of making television and TV? Gosh, film? yeah. <laughs> um, clearly, movies are still on a per-project basis where everybody gets hired in one big swoop, uh, and then they set out a production schedule that goes for months on end, and then it's all over, and then they just kind of wait, and then the, the editors take over and all that stuff. I mean, and you could correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I wonder if the portal model, that is, say, Amazon or Netflix, making these shows that are released in these kind of binge clumps that is effective, and, the, and they're produced not unlike movies, in that they're not this kind of serial, ongoing production structure. They're, they're mm -hmm. like one big production that goes all en masse. And it might be like a 10-hour movie to the extent that we're also talking about like a four-month shoot. Mm -hmm. Whereas something like I would think like with serial television prior to that like the writers might begin writing on a show in the fall and not actually know and have written what the final episode of that show would have been at the end of that quote-unquote season well, lost was constant writing and filming as things were airing exactly. and so i guess kind of, that's the idea that we're getting at yeah, is that's like right. things are production is happening while it's airing yeah. while writing's happening like the, everything's kind of happening at and the same time. and 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 as a result uh, showrunners or production executives can make decisions about the course of a season based on how things are going during that season how ratings are happening and and and, and viewer response whereas a cinema project you make this thing with fingers crossed and dump it into the market, and that's very similar to like a binged show, mm -hmm. like this thing I've been watching, which is not particularly good, is the Iron Fist. Uh, so it does. I don't know if I mean it, it seems to me that that's happening. That that maybe like these portal produced shows that are kind of dropped into the mm -hmm. market all at once are more cinematic in their production models. Like so that'd be an interesting project to research yeah. in, in terms yeah. of looking at something like say you make the first season of something and then uh, to what degree is the second is it the same production crew that's mostly then reassembled or, you know so that it is kind of like bringing the gang all back together or right. at this point are there too many constraints in terms of schedule because i think you're right on in terms of I mean, we're seeing a variety of, of practices in some cases, yeah. you know, like the green lighting of two seasons at once. Right, it's like, okay, right, right, you know, yeah. so you know if you get hired on, you're, you've got sort of this more extended potential employment. Yeah. But, um, right, in many cases, and I mean, I think what's also tricky is that this isn't specific to the distribution outlet. This is also what HBO has been doing That's for right. a large part as That's well um, in terms of having everything in the can and then you know, releasing it well after production has ended. That's and a right. lot of cable shows in general, like that's not dissimilar to like what FX did, does with the Americans mm -hmm. and oh, shows right? like that. I didn't yeah. know that. Okay. I think they film like they're on episode 11 yeah. if by the time they premiere if they right. haven't finished already. Yeah. yeah. I think it varies sort of and I don't think there is a standard practice. It kind of depends on actor availability yeah. when the episodes need to air right well and i would point to and strangely uh, the model for that kind of a simultaneous production of a series all at once is also cinematic when you look to the uh lord of the rings films and the second two uh, matrix films so warner brothers actually in both cases warner brothers and, and, and lord of the rings new line they knew that the money was so big and there was already kind of an, an idea that 
we can't only make one of these. So to create efficiencies of labor, right? To have because you've only got the actors on set for this amount of time, um, or we can know we can keep them there for that amount of time. And we, so yeah, just in terms of efficiencies, if you know you're making three movies, or if you know you're making two movies, you do it all at once um, because it's more efficient that way. Do you know to what degree that's the model guiding the various Star Wars films at this point? I, mean, I obviously don't, it didn't for a long time. Right. Um, I don't think that's what's guiding them. I can't. I mean, because the, they're not continuous productions, and in fact, yeah, they've got different directors. I don't know even to what extent the crews have been overlapping on the on the different Star Wars things. I mean, Disney with that with the Star Wars monster is just clearly they bought an intellectual property and said we are going right. to make as much money off of this as rapidly and as consistently as possible, <laughs> which they'd already. You know, and and their experience with Marvel just prior to that said, okay, we can release a movie into market every year, and there will be an audience for this thing. Yeah, um, I, I was thinking when you brought up Star Wars, so how does something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe fit into kind of the broader question of right. film and TV kind of blurring the lines? Because right. that's very much like a serialized story being yeah. told over the course of multiple movies, and right. it's. Right now, it's building toward Infinity Wars. Right, and right. What is it, 2018 next year, I think, yeah. they're coming out? Yeah. And, and um, okay, so one thing, I would say, I've got a little bit of a plug. So I've got a book coming out uh, this year uh, called uh, Film Remakes and Franchises. So if the book has a theoretical center, it's this idea that I play with called industrial intertextuality. Just to say that the whole book is organized, organized around the idea that these narrative forms and these connections between texts or the intertext is by industrial design and that's not necessarily new but the exact shape of the industrial design of intertextuality has changed over time whereas previously the remake was a more consistent form in Hollywood I mean there were tons and tons of remakes in the 20s 30s and 40s right now we have intertextuality by design from film to film in a kind of ongoing narrative elaboration, which is a very televisual kind of thing to do. But then, of course, the franchise model of connecting disparate texts across different media and consumer products, right? Lunchboxes and toys and uh, backpacks. And But also, so you talk about Marvel, you talk about the spreading across uh, ABC with the... Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., thank you. And Agent Carter. And when, Agent when Carter. That was and then um, you've got the Marvel Cinematic Universe in on one or two films that they release every year, yeah. which are these tent poles. And then you've got the, the, the kind of interesting thing that they've been doing with Netflix is creating this kind of micro uh, uh, franchise within this one portal environment of, of the Defenders, of yeah. Daredevil, uh, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, Iron yeah, Fist. Yeah. And, and, so, and yet that little mini-universe still exists in the broader universe of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. Like they're all kind of, they're all in that same continuity. That's right. And so, and people I know have talked a lot about world building and creating shared worlds. And of course, Derek Johnson talks a lot about the, like, all of that takes industrial coordination. It's not mm -hmm. just like franchises are born and like, oh, it's clearly this uh, behemoth that's swamping culture. It actually takes a lot of work to create right. those mental connections and then to put them into practice through licensing agreements and, mm -hmm. and, and all sorts of media production. Uh, maybe I'm spinning out of control on this, but um, no, but I do think it's a combination of factors of that it blends practices that seem televisual, right. 
right? Serialization. Serialization, which is also a cinematic form, which is also a literary form right. prior to that. But I do think that it's exploited in a particularly historically distinct way in the contemporary period. In part, that's underwritten or underpinned by the fact that these big companies own these extensive IPs that they and they've got the outlets where they can exploit that same intellectual property and, it, and it's not just IPs these are popular IPs oh, yeah. Spider-Man right. you know huge Captain America these are huge names I mean right. even on the DC side Superman Batman like the names that you think of when you think of superheroes that's right that's right and we, are, we haven't even talked about the fact that there are still comic books yeah I mean, <laughs> like people actually still do buy comic oh, books oh absolutely and this is this whole industry uh, where it's like really cheap R and D, where they can say, "Hey, we can pay this comic book writer to do this thing. We don't have to pay this person very much, and they can spin out the story, and maybe that turns into something." So that's a lot on how we might distinguish these industries in ter- terms of industrial practices. Yeah. So let's talk about exhibition. Okay. Um, yeah. And so yeah. you know, I think for for a lot of people, like a film is something that you go to the theater for, yeah. and I think I probably rolled my eyes and stopped listening right. um, when film was debating, you know, you know, well, well, can a film be on television and things right. like that? You know, are there still holdouts other than the Academy that just sort of, you know, like, like a film is defined by theatrical exhibition? I think that there are still genuine cinephiles who are, who are prioritized the big screen experience, the theatrical experience, the communal viewing, those sorts of things. I, and I would say that the people that there are filmmakers who still have investments in that c- world in that culture. I know thinking that like Chris Nolan, Scorsese to a certain yeah, extent, sure. even though he just did a movie, he's about to do a movie with right. Netflix, uh, as I say his name. But. Yeah, and even like younger independent filmmakers uh, who uh, they grow up being cinephiles mm-hmm. and they think, well, that's exactly who, how I want to be when I grow up, and that's the kind of filmmaker I want to be. What do you think uh, of a movie like? This is a little bit tangential, like Jordan Peele's Get Out. Something that's, oh. like, clearly, you know, I saw it in a theater with a lot of people and kind of yeah. had this huge communal right. viewing experience. I haven't and seen like, it yet, but Oh, it's yeah, so I know, it's supposed to be great. But um, he kind of, like, looking at his tweets and stuff about the movie, he's clearly, like, trying to market it as, like, go to the theater to see this movie with a whole bunch of other right. people. Right, So I get it. And then I guess that's a different kind of thing it's equally cinematic though i mean like some people make like for whom cinema is about the big screen the beautiful image all of those kinds of high art kind of things other people going to the movies is about going to the movies with people right about seeing comedies and big groups because you laugh harder when you're around people laughing right um and so that's not a particularly highbrow position to take regarding the uniqueness of the of the theater I don't know what I make of that. In terms of exhibition, um, I mean, one thing, and we could actually really debate this, is like it seems to me that like a lot of the crisis or the tension around television and how to define it is related to home video, right? And it's interesting to me that home video forced movies to change and film culture to change before it forced television to rethink itself, right? Say how. So, like... VCR has come out in North America in 77, and there's clearly a crazy appetite for that. And they, by mm-hmm. the time, you know, the eight, early 80s, we've got video stores all over the place. And by 1987, home video revenues outpaced theatrical revenue, right? But you don't see in 1987 a lot of TV series on tape, right? TV on a portable home video format doesn't really start happening until the early 2000s on DVD selling or renting the quality 
phenomenal television of The Sopranos and the other things that were made for HBO. Yeah, I was just looking at some of that and, and trying to explain it in something I'm writing, and I think, I mean, it, it's not all HBO. There are some things sure. that are exceptions, like The Simpsons, for example. Um, <laughs> right, no, that's a great one point. that regularly does well. Yep. I mean, because you can understand HBO in terms of there being you know, 75% of the American population that doesn't subscribe to the service that right. might be interested in the programs. Yep. And one of the ways that I explain that difference, um, one is technologically, twenty-eight hour or twenty-two hours of narrative on VHS is a is a whole shelf. That's right. Um, and That's so cool. it wasn't feasible that way, right? Technologically, uh, in terms of what VHS tape could do, but I also think it has to do with the way the industry was changing at in the late 1990s, which is when cable starts producing original series, and yep. the way in which there were occasional, you know, sort of distinctive series, but mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot on television that people would want to collect, right. that people would want to go back and watch, and there also wasn't this sense of there being so much on television, right? Yep. You really only had, until the late 1990s, three big networks, and then gradually Fox in 86 and um, UPN and WB in 96, even creating content. So there wasn't the sense that you, you couldn't consume it all. That's right. In the way that beginning in the early 2000s, as cable begins its original series production, you, you do start to have sort of the creation of this environment in which um, simply watching on pace with a, a DVR begins to be unsustainable. Right. People got used to binging on VHS and DVD movies. Like you'd rent four movies at a time. And they weren't related to one another. You, you, they might be. You could rent all right. of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. But, you know, you'd also just go to the video store and get five good movies. And so people were very accustomed to sitting down and watching six hours of video at a stretch, right? And so then it's kind of this priming the, the pump or something for, for, to make audiences interested in longer form narratives that they can, can consume all at once, at, but at their own pace, right. right? So they can pause it, come back to it later. Um, binge it. And so I think that it's interesting that ho movies and home video were the innovation first, right? Before television and home video, whether that's on a streaming or on initially DVD. Television, in terms of offering multiple iterations, multiple episodes of the same beloved story world is, is a real, was a real threat to the, the theatrical or the cinematic model of your story is told in roughly 110 minutes and that's that. And one thing that came out in one of the consultant reports we talked about uh, months ago now uh, was this idea of you know, why don't film theaters exhibit television? That's a great question. Uh, I mean, and, and just like, obviously, you know, you're not going to go down there to see you know, any old show. But You're not going to like go down there to watch an episode of The Big Bang Theory. Probably right. not. But, you know, <laughs> some, the, uh, the Mad Men yeah. finale, the Game of Thrones yeah. season premiere. And, yeah. and, and again, you know, why would that work? For right. exactly those reasons that we sort of established of the idea of it is an event, it's often something that's going to be visually uh, yeah. spectacular, and that community or sense of, of fan base yeah. um, enjoying the experience together. Yeah. I mean, that would really mess up our efforts to understand those two but I, And I feel like if we just scratch the surface, there have to be examples of like... Doctor Who. Yeah, Doctor Who it. or like Game, Game of, of Thrones. Game of Thrones did it. Like the IMAX release of the couple episodes, it made $1.8 Did it really? So yeah. there, there you go. So there are these kind of... Um, 
weird experiments that actually aren't they, they are kind of the flip side to the experiment of Netflix buying a theater for a week to put <laughs> Beast of No Nation there right, right. it's like well then let's just buy a theater and throw uh, Game of Thrones on there and people going hey guess what could be awesome is watching Game of Thrones which a bunch of strangers who I know love the show and it was on an IMAX screen and right. you know Game so of Thrones is like if good. there's any show it's pro- that's primed to be like on a huge screen, it's that one. And what I heard, it was like IMAX just had a hole in their schedule, and it's like, (laughs) well, what are we going to do? Let's put Game of Thrones there. So we talked industrial practices, we talked exhibition. Yeah. So let's talk about texts. Yeah, Like, and to what degree, you know, is... So the actual element, like, the actual movies or TV shows themselves. Are there differences that we can identify between film and television? Um, And which is where, at last, we'll go to this question of, if there were such a thing as a 10-hour movie, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> well, OJ Made in America? <laughs> they, there, there are experimental films that are 10 hours long, uh, or uh, certain Chinese documentaries that are five hours or long. Or the Oscar-winning documentary from this year, OJ Made in America, is eight hours long. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think, you know, but so other Clearly than, those are not the norm. No. Right, right. Yeah. or, you know, I guess I think about this in terms of how frankly difficult it must be to be creating for Amazon and Netflix oh if you're not given any guidance in terms mm-hmm. of actually how they do see most people watching things. Right, and right. when I'm watching a show, a, a television show on their service, my standard is usually two, two episodes at a time. Mm-hmm. Most of the shows that I like are actually still structured for one hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I really struggled with Jessica Jones because it wasn't. Right. Um, <laughs> and had a number of students who, who did watch it in like a 10-hour chunk. And right. it worked for them in a way that I had found it just plotting and never-ending and yeah. Yeah. I struggled with Sense8 for the same reason. That show, you know, I, I reviewed it for the, the paper here, yeah. and my main criticism was it just take took too long to get to the point. Like, it was episode six, and they're just dropping, like, the main plot of the right, show. Like, right. they had a line that was just, like, so blatantly obvious. It's just like, you're just getting to that yeah, now. Yeah. Like, it's meant to be watched in one chunk, but... I think, I mean, okay, so think about it. Uh, when I think about this... Like the form, the text, uh, and how network, how internet shows, platform shows are messing with things. I mean, I think because you can still look at a movie and say, okay, I expect it to be between ninety and one hundred twenty minutes long. At minute thirty, the protagonist is going to do something like this. He's gonna, he or she's gonna decide to be involved with the story, and things get escalated, right? And similarly, when you sit down for a 22-minute sitcom with commercial breaks, you know what's going to happen to your time, right? So you think about it from the writer's perspective in terms of creating story structure. You think about that in terms of telling a narrative across time, uh, and that is time, not necessarily linear narrative time, but rather time of consumption on the viewer's part. And yeah, and and the portal shows, that is the shows by Amazon and Netflix and others, are more, like, they've got these almost residual echoes of, like, televisual storytelling time, but also these larger times that are new because Mm -hmm. they're 10-hour blocks as blocks, um, which is not a cinematic. There's no convention within cinema that you can draw on for, say, how do we tell something over the course of 10 hours? Mm -hmm. So I think some of that stuff that was happening with things like Lost and The Sopranos, Mm -hmm. where people were thinking about in terms of what's the story of the season, 
right? And that's clearly the thinking behind these these portal shows that have to tell these ten hour stories. But then the individual episode length, as you say, is variable and sometimes strange. And somewhere it's not exactly a televisual precursor. You know, it's not a, a cinematic precursor. So it's some weird new thing that is borrowing from the temporalities of both textual forms. I think yeah. maybe is that some, right. What about something like? Would that be something like a series of unfortunate events? Where you have, like, you know, we, we've talked about this before. We've talked about it, but I haven't seen it. Um, yeah. It's like they do a book as two episodes that form yeah. kind of a two-hour block chunk. Yeah, yeah, and that makes a lot of sense to me. I actually only... Because I saw the Series of Unfortunate Events movie, mm-hmm. and then I read most of the first book, and now I watched half of the first episode. And it's been... I don't... I've got nothing to make about that. Other than, <laughs> sorry, I've laid all this stuff out. But I... But um, I... It is... It, it is interesting to have seen, okay, this is how the movie took this book and did with it what it did. And now mm-hmm. watching the show, saying, oh, and that's how it relates to the movie, and the timeline is a little bit more stretched out, but not quite... The budget's definitely quite different. The look yeah. of things is different. The one, actually, one of the cases that I wanted to bring up is a really odd one, odd form, is um, The OA. I don't know if either of you watched that. I have not. Really weird show. The episode length was totally variable. So, like, the first one is 90, second one was 60, one of the episodes is only 37, right? And so it's got this full season, and I I really, like, it would be almost worth going back to rewatch just to figure out, like, why was that episode that length? Um, and what generated, what made the writer create the story beats that that was the right length at all? Mm-hmm. The other weird thing about this, and this is just funny, is that the the cold open, you know how like when, like for five minutes and then you get the title? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard this, but the cold open on the OA is a solid like 60 some minutes. So you're, <laughs> so you're watching the show and like you're watching it, you're like, oh, I'm just in the show now. And then suddenly like something happens and it goes, you know, the OA. And you're like, oh, this is the opening credits and I'm 60 minutes into the first episode. So they're really clearly, I mean, I think messing with form, uh, including the like opening yeah. credits, right? Uh, No, I think we probably are in a space where there's really interesting textual work to be done in terms of looking at narrative structures and different pacing um, and and, and what is the consequence of it. And so in this way in which creators have been forced to work within these fairly narrow constraints. That's right. In this new space, you know, I'm not, it's not one of those things where taking the rules away, I think, is actually unleashing this great and wonderful thing, necessarily. But uh, it would be interesting to do sort of exactly what you noted and and see how narratives are charting in terms of um, pacing and things like that. Yeah, and and if you think about it from a a screenwriting perspective, like where are the kind of crisis moments, where are the decision moments happening, and are they at minute you know, 40 rather than 10 now and things like that. And I do think it's just interesting to think about how exhibition has shaped narrative structures and textual form. And now with new forms, it's not exactly exhibition because we're still all watching on TV screens mostly uh, for this kind of entertainment, but that, that, uh, that it is changing the narrative possibilities because you can have total access to a text that's however long and watch it however you like and that means yeah new creative possibilities for for writers but they also have to have been trained and like are they coming from like a film writing background are they coming from a tv writing background but even Uh, in weekly tv we're seeing variable length too um, with like what fx is doing they allow their episodes to kind of fluctuate between like 
42 and even 60 minutes wow. depending on the episode in particular was yeah that I, I was trying to remember what the <laughs> yeah. what the show was that really struggled with that it was yeah. sons of anarchy interesting uh, and i think yeah so i think yeah it's hard to know in some cases i think there are different things going on like in, in terms of whether an episode is written and structured in a certain way or whether it used to be that you know it's not a matter of the episode structure and pacing it's just that now the force of editing is not as hard. Like, that's right. You don't have to be an hour, and so you know, I that's know right. in, in in my chosen medium when I'm writing, it's always easier to leave more than to cut it down to whatever it's <laughs> supposed to be. Right, yeah. right. And, and you can trust that if people get confused or need to go to the bathroom, they can pause, they can rewind. You don't need that kind of redundant storytelling mm-hmm. that was so typical of television sure. where the kind of reiteration of, like, this is why we're talking about this. So, like, this you come back and you kind of reiterate with, like, the first yeah. ten seconds where you were when you broke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so narratives can be, as, as, you know, various scholars have pointed out, narratives can be more complex because the viewers have more control over the text to puzzle it together themselves. And if you're confused, you stop it, you talk with your, your or, loved one and say, what is happening? Or you rewind and like go back and rewatch yeah. that scene to see if there's something you missed. That's yeah. right. Or even just, for me, it's narrative memory. Right, and, um, right. And the ability to you know, watch, you know, with only a day or two in between episodes as yeah. opposed to like these giant week gaps. And That's it's right. still a case like... I came back to House of Cards after I think about eighteen months, and I'm like, "What happened before?" Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, I don't but know when I remember. come back to House of Cards, it'll be like three years, yeah. so it'll be like, "Where, where was I?" Yeah. Like, yeah. and at some point, you know, we're dealing with some story about the past, and what exactly happened? I yeah. don't even yeah. know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. So we we've talked about um, exhibition and technology and industrial practice. How does like gov- how does government regulation oh play a role in terms of <laughs> defining these uh, right. these different industries? I mean, I think it does and doesn't. I mean, in the in the U.S. market, well, not in the modern era, right? Where right. you have fairly limited codes at this point. Yeah. You can talk about the film side, but on the television side, you know, I think. I would argue that the aspect where services such as HBO and Netflix are probably the most different, it's not that, yes, there are certain rules for broadcasters and broadcasters are held to a different standard, but for the most part, that regulation is coming from advertisers and uh, concern about doing anything that's going to upset an audience that's going to then make that advertiser upset. So... In many ways, I think this pivot to subscriber-funded services, yes, the rules themselves are different, but getting away from that regulatory power that advertisers effectively have as the funders yeah. has been the more significant shift there. And That's so really in, in that way, again, it's hard to even put all of television in a single bucket in that way, right. Right? that they're really very different television industries in that right. regard. Well, and, I, and maybe this isn't quite what you're asking, or maybe it is. Um, but the regulation, to the extent that, we'll, and we'll see what happens with Warner Brothers, AT and T. But really, we live in an environment where the government doesn't mind how big companies get. In an environment where telecom can be a thing that also includes television networks and film studios and phone phone companies, right? And that, and or and cable companies, right? right Comcast, right. and and so simply for the fact that the same companies that the Comcast that own the pipes that go into my house, and uh, control the companies that create a good majority of content flowing over that thing, it seems to me that that's like that only facilitates kind of digital delivery and the and the narrative forms that 
kind of come about through digitally delivered content because you've got a marriage of the digital infrastructure and the cable infrastructure or whatever else, telecom infrastructure, with content makers and con conventional content distributors, whether you call them media networks, TV networks, or movie studios, right? Um, and so that marriage, that lack of a regulatory environment that allows these companies to be all the same only ensures that they will find ways of capitalizing on all of that stuff, and that will include digitally distributed narratives, whether you call it film right. or television, <laughs> right? Are, I don't think we've gotten anywhere in terms of deciding whether it's one, the other, or neither. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued. Yeah. So, Dan, yeah. Herbert, thank yeah. you so much for oh, yeah. joining us on this week's Media Business Matters. No, we very much enjoyed having you here. Yeah, no, and your it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and now it's time for the last segment of each and every show, What We're Watching This Week. Amanda, what are you watching this week? I am catching up on Netflix, and so I just powered through the most recent season of House of Cards, which I obviously had not gotten to. Um, I am working my way through a lot of BoJack Horseman and have just started The Crown. Ooh, I'm not current on House of Cards. It's not my favorite show, and there's just too many other things in the world, but BoJack, I love BoJack. It's such, like, a really <laughs> smart, like, surprisingly deep show about a horse. All of those things are true. It's, it's difficult to describe, and yes. And uh, The Crown, I, you know, I've watched a few episodes of it. I haven't powered through the whole thing, but uh, I, I knew I needed to watch it when the people, when the workers in Buckingham Palace recommended it. Oh, wow. They said it was great. No, so. it's, 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 it's very much in the vein of, I think, what exactly is my taste community, which is sort of these political, uh, behind-the-scenes sort of intrigue, etc. So it, it, it actually makes a, it's a natural progression from House of Cards. Because in many ways, the same kinds of stories, just in a slightly different context. And with maybe a little less murder. So far. So uh, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, Alex, what are you watching? So I, I realized I hadn't talked about movies in a while. So I think I'll use this chance to talk about a couple movies I saw recently. The first of which is Beauty and the Beast, um, Disney's remake of the 1991 movie, which I really enjoyed. I mean, I have my nitpicks with it. Like... Um, they didn't include the song that closes the first act of the musical called If I Can't Love Her, which is probably, which is a, such a great Beast song. Like, it's the song that was written for him, and it's like the big climactic moment at the end of the first act. He's just thrown Belle out, and now he's just like, I'm hopeless. And they didn't include it. They did write a Beast song called Evermore, which is really good, but it doesn't, like, the score was just missing that much more of an emotional punch, but the visuals were great. That cast is stacked. With, like, Audrey McDonald, Ian McKellen, Emma Watson, Dan Stevens, Luke Evans, Josh Gad. Like, that is a loaded cast of characters. And they all were excellent. I mean, and by the end, you know, I did have that warm, fuzzy feeling that you're supposed to have at the end of Beauty and the Beast. And I also recently saw Get Out, the Jordan Peele uh, oh, yes. horror thriller, I guess. I, I It's not really horror, though. Like, it, it's... But it's so smart. Not a line of dialogue in that script is wasted. Like, it's building. It's building. And I really don't want to say what it's actually about. But the logline is an African-American male goes to visit his girlfriend's right. family in the Bronx, or er, in upstate New York. He's done a lot of media, so I think that, 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 that part's not giving clear. anything yeah. away. Yeah. But I don't, like, there's so many twists and turns and, like, 
things about this story that are just so smart and so well done. I loved every second of it. I also happened to see it in a very rowdy theater. <laughs> so, um, like, people shouting things at the screen, clapping, like... Yeah, so you had the whole you had a whole experience. I did, and you know, I, I guess it's an argument for going to see movies in the yeah. theaters. It'll be but... very different when I see it when it finally makes it to some sort of pay per view or online service. But... It definitely will, but I, <laughs> I think you'll still enjoy it nonetheless. And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click the link at the top of the page for our podcast, or you can go to the iTunes Store. Just and subscribe to us there by searching our name. You can also rate and review us on the iTunes store. Please, if you listen to us there, rate and review us. It helps us get discovered. And you can now find us on the Google Play store by going to play.google.com slash music and searching for Media Business Matters. Amanda, where can our fine listeners find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Zintner. That's Alex I-N-T-N-E-R. All right, thank you all for listening, and we'll be back soon.